Like the place is on fire. We're going to be in, uh, in a great text this morning. They're all great texts, but this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, just continuing right on through our study through the gospel according to Mark. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles that you can use, and you can just raise your hand and we'll put one into your hands. So a Bible here and one over there. Um, and then if you don't have a Bible at home, please take this one home and make it uh, our gift to you from uh, the Lord. So um, over here, one of our elite college students who apparently the bookshop was closed so they couldn't get their books before the semester started. Hey, let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this fellowship that we share, the wonderful things that you're doing here within our church body. Lord, the opportunities to come alongside one another and encourage one another. We thank you for this blessed occasion of uh, just dedicating young Joshua to you this morning. Lord, and we pray now as we continue to worship, Lord, through our study of the word, Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher. We pray that you would give us open hearts and open ears to hear what your, what your spirit would say to your church. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So remember when we last left Jesus, he was heading up to Jerusalem uh, for what would be the very last time, um, at least here in his earthly ministry. The cross was waiting for him there. It was certainly, no doubt, it was looming large on the horizon, both for him as well, probably in some ways for the disciples. And we saw that Jesus, though, had set his face toward Jerusalem because Jesus knew that just beyond what he knew awaited him, the, the pain and horror of the cross, just beyond that was the joy and the triumph of the resurrection. We talked about the fact that it was, you know, as the author to the Hebrew said, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. And we saw last time specifically that as he had just left from Jericho, and that would have been kind of the last major city, the last stop on his route uh, along, you know, from the Galilee up to Jerusalem. But Jesus had joined in now with this multitude of these Jewish Passover pilgrims as they all were headed up to Jerusalem. And along the way, we witnessed what we said was Jesus' final miracle of mercy. You remember he healed poor blind Bartimaeus and he restored his sight. And what a wonderful picture of the way that Jesus brings healing to us of our spiritual blindness. And as we looked at it, we mentioned last time we looked at this man Bartimaeus, that he's the only person whom Jesus healed that is named for us in the gospel accounts. But what we didn't mention last time is that Bartimaeus is also the only person whom Jesus healed who he didn't tell not to tell anyone that he had just healed him. Right Over and over we've seen Jesus provide miraculous healing after miraculous healing and immediately he turns around and he tells the person not to tell anyone that it was Jesus who had healed them. Right in, in Mark 7, it says he commanded them that they should tell no one. But this time, he very strangely doesn't give that same warning to Bartimaeus. And there's a very good reason for that. You know, as we read through the accounts of Jesus' life and his ministry in the Gospels, we see over and over that the people are continually sort of trying to take him by force. And they want to make him king. Right? The common people were hearing him gladly. They were recognizing in him the one who they wanted to be their king. They wanted him to be their long-awaited Messiah. And they pressed him on a couple of different occasions to proclaim himself to be king. And yet we see over and over again that he responds... Right? He's trying to avoid controversy. He's trying to avoid confrontation with the religious leaders. And he says the same thing over and over. Just like he'd said beginning in John chapter 2. He says, my hour has not yet come. Because all this time, for the last three and a half years, it wasn't time yet for him to fully present himself to the nation and to the religious leaders of Judaism as the Messiah. We know that Jesus always was working according to the timetable 
of the Father. And yet, now this morning, as we come to our text today, on what we'll see is a beautiful Israeli spring morning, this morning, now it was time. And as we come now to Mark's account of what we all know as the triumphal entry, or also as Palm Sunday, and it's interesting in, again, the construction of Mark's account, as we start now with the triumphal entry, we sort of enter into the last third of Mark's gospel. And the entire space is dedicated to those days just before and just after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which often we would call the, the Passion Week of Christ. And what's really interesting about Mark's version is that this portion of Mark is so extensive, right? Some people have characterized the gospel of Mark as the story of Jesus' Passion Week with a 10-chapter introduction, right? Because think about it, Mark has just dedicated, we've just been through them, right? 10 full chapters to that three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus, but now he's about to dedicate six full chapters just to this final week of that ministry and all of these events that are surrounding the cross. And in just that, the, the lesson for us, I think, should be obvious. And that is that these events of this last visit by Jesus to Jerusalem, these events are of incredible importance and relevance. Right? Even if we didn't know, right? Whatever is about to happen there in Jerusalem, it would be vital and it would be important. Because as important as his life has been and as important as his teachings were, they would be nothing without his death and his resurrection from the dead. Right? He is the king of a kingdom. But there would be no citizens of that kingdom unless he died and rose again and gave his life as a ransom for many, right? He had to substitute himself for his people. And this event that we're going to look at this morning is the event that puts everything else now fully into motion. So this morning, it is the triumphal entry, right? It's Palm Sunday, and yet it's on Labor Day weekend, as opposed to in the spring when it is every year. But today is the day that Jesus would finally present himself as a very different kind of king for a very different kind of kingdom. And it, not surprisingly, it's one of these important events that's recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. And you have probably heard this story taught year after year for as many years as you've been a believer. But I think it's exciting this morning that we really have the opportunity to look at it now from Mark's perspective and really in the context of all of these last 10 chapters we've seen so far. So let's pick up, looking at verse 1 of Mark chapter 11. We've just left Jericho, and Jesus and his disciples would have ascended this steep kind of winding road that leads from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 1 that when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, I want to pause here and just point out if all we had was Mark's account, or pardon me, Mark's account of the gospel, then we might think that this is the first journey that Jesus ever made to Jerusalem, because it's really the only one that Mark specifically records. And yet in the Gospel of John in particular, we read of many, many previous trips that Jesus would have made, because like any devout Jewish man, Jesus would have gone to Jerusalem each and every year multiple times for as many of the major feasts as he possibly could. So in a sense, this was a very normal trip, but also a very unique trip in a, in a much bigger way. So we're going to see here on this very final approach, getting to the city of Jerusalem itself, they come through these little neighboring towns. It says they're Bethpage and Bethany. Those were sort of, think of them as suburbs of the city, but they sat just on the other side, right? The eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, and they paused there just for this moment. And what we're going to see is a very important part of the preparation for this first Palm Sunday. Look in the rest of verse 1 and on into verse 2. 
It says they were there in Bethpage and Bethany. He sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. Now this seems to be sort of a strange request. right? Jesus now sends two of his disciples ahead to get him what in fact is a donkey. And in fact... It's a baby donkey, right? Such a baby donkey that no one has ever ridden on this donkey because for some reason, Jesus says that he has need of it. Now, we just said that Jesus had certainly gone to Jerusalem year after year for all of these different feasts, probably since he was a small child, and yet he had never ridden in there on a donkey. So why is it that Jesus has need of it this time around? Well, it's not likely that Jesus just suddenly needed this donkey because he was tired from a long walk, right? Though we wonder maybe that's what the disciples may have thought. But keep in mind, Jesus has just walked on foot over the course of these last couple days, right? He's walked from the Galilee down to Bethany, now through Jericho. This is about an 80-mile walk. So certainly he could have made the last two miles without needing a donkey. So he didn't have need of it because he was tired. But instead he had need of it because he knew that the time had now come to present himself in Jerusalem as the Messiah. And he knew that he needed to do it in direct fulfillment of a well-known and a very much anticipated messianic prophecy. Now Mark doesn't specifically mention the prophecy, although both Matthew and John do. It's Zechariah chapter 9. You've all heard it. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So rather than an issue of exhaustion, this was an issue of Jesus' presentation to his people as the king of Israel. So this is Jesus' prophetic demonstration. We know that every move that the Lord Jesus made as he went through the world was in exact step with both the Father's will and the prophetic word. And Jesus had made, like we said, he'd made the same journey to Jerusalem countless times before, but this time it was about to be very different because this time it was time, right? And what Jesus is doing here, this is a very deliberate messianic claim, which came at this divinely predetermined time as he prepares himself now to offer himself to the uh, people right during the feast of the Passover, Right at precisely the time of year when Jerusalem would have been just surging with Jews from all over the country as well as all over the world. So he was about to present himself as none other than the anointed one of God in direct fulfillment of one of the clearest and most well-known messianic prophecies in all of the Old Testament. And he was about to do it on the very day that the scripture has, scriptures had prophesied that he would. Because if you look in John's account in particular, don't panic, we're not going to do it this morning, I'll just say that John goes to great lengths to establish the fact that this event happened on a Sunday, which we can trace to determine precisely that this day, it would have chronologically been the 10th of Nisan, Right By our calendar, it would have been the 6th of April. It would have been four days before the Passover that year. And it is not at all by coincidence. It was the very day that had been prophesied hundreds of years previously. Right, Daniel chapter 9. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So again, literally, seven sevens 
and 62 sevens, or 69 seven-year units, or 483 years. So 483 years from March 14th, 445 BC, that is the day that Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah the charge to rebuild Jerusalem. So 483 years, that exact day brings us to what? April 6th of AD 32. This very day as Jesus enters Jerusalem. So this is a day that the people and certainly the religious leaders of Judaism, they should have had this day circled on their calendars, right? With a big star next to it and an arrow pointing towards it, right? It's no wonder that Luke tells us that as Jesus stopped, he approached the city. Remember, it says, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. Because they should have known the exact day of his coming because it had been given to them prophetically in the scriptures. Keep in mind, this is this day when there would have been this tremendous multitude of Jews overwhelming Jerusalem, right? For Passover was the, the greatest holiday of the Jewish calendar. Historians estimate that at the Passover, the city of Jerusalem would swell from being a town of about 50,000 to now being a, a city that was accommodating upwards of more than a million people, right? The Passover, remember, is this festival that commemorated God's great deliverance of his people from their slavery in Egypt. It really is the, it's sort of like our 4th of July, only better, right? It's the, the celebration of the birth of the Jewish nation. And so what this meant is that every Jew was supposed to make their way up to Jerusalem at this time to celebrate this event. So the, the, the city of Jerusalem would have been absolutely bustling with Jewish community and it would have been crowded and just filled with this incredible sort of a, 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 a anticipation as they just think back to the way that God had delivered them, right? We're at this time in his ministry when Jesus' popularity amongst the people has written to this, risen to this sort of maximum capacity, right? So tensions are hot, expectations are high on this day as this multitude is coming into the city. And again, it's John that tells us that this great crowd had come from the festival that they had heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So the stage is set, right? Everything that Jesus now does from here forward during this final week in Jerusalem, he does by design and with this determination to now openly demonstrate and to call to attention the fact for this multitude that he was nothing less than the promised Messiah. And all of that begins right here as he prepares to enter the holy city as Messiah King on this day, on this donkey. Now, we think donkey, right? We think of some kind of a lowly, that's a cute donkey, right? Not all donkeys are that cute, right? Trust me, I spent all kinds of time looking at Google images of donkeys yesterday, right? That's the cutest donkey I could find. To the Jew, though, a donkey was a beast that was fit for a king. It was a beast that was ridden by kings. You know, in the, in the Bible, the donkey's a sign of humility and it's a sign of service. It's a sign of regal authority. And there's examples of that in Genesis and Judges and in the Samuels, Kings and in Chronicles. It would have been, riding a donkey would have been sort of like rolling into town in a Rolls Royce. Right? So Jesus gives two of his disciples these very specific instructions on where they can find this very specific baby donkey. And so it says in verse 4, that so they went on their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and so they let them go. So, just exactly as we would expect, 
Things went exactly as Jesus had expected that they would. The owner of the donkey lets the donkey go with these two disciples. And yet, for me, every time I read this, I think what we might not have expected and what I do think we can take a minute and just give some credit for, I think it's worth noting here that the disciples, these two disciples are acting in this complete kind of beautiful obedience to what Jesus had told them to do, likely not knowing in the slightest that they were actually fulfilling prophecy at this point. Because when we read these verses, we almost expect to read the very next verse, which says something like, you know, and, and after Jesus asked them to do this, Peter said, but Lord, right? Or, or no Lord, not a donkey, right? But it's not there. So I think we do need to give the disciples some credit here for their obedience. And especially since, again, John tells us that the disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So all of this Jesus on a donkey and the whole idea of fulfilling prophecy, the whole idea that this was the presentation of Jesus as Israel's king, none of that meant anything to the disciples until after his death. Right? They, they lacked the perspective of the cross and in particular, they lacked the perspective of the resurrection, right? So the disciples, just like the nation, they were still blindly unaware that Jesus had come to die, right? And to solve this far greater problem than simply delivering the Jews from their oppression under Rome. And yet in faith, they act here in obedience, and I, I love this whole donkey business because I think that for each of us as followers of Jesus, I think that what all of these donkey details should remind us of, once again, is that we can have faith in the fact that God is always completely in control. And here's what I mean by that. Again, all of this donkey stuff, it all kind of reads almost... Like this was some sort of a miraculous event. Like the Lord had somehow supernaturally provided this donkey. You know, you will let them take this donkey. This is not the donkey you're, this is the donkey you're looking for, right? But it's also just as possible and it's plausible that Jesus had somehow prearranged for this donkey's use. He may have even made some sort of arrangement with the owner on a, on a previous date, on a prior visit to Jerusalem, and that wouldn't be uncharacteristic at all because, for example, we know, Mark and Luke both tell us, that Jesus had reserved the upper room for the Last Supper well in advance of the Last Supper. Right? So we don't really know whether this was a supernatural thing that happened or just simply a natural thing that had been arranged for. But I think that that's part of the beauty here. We don't know because we don't need to know because it doesn't matter. All that we do know is that Jesus took care of it because that's what Jesus does. He takes care of all the details. Even these details here as he's preparing for his own death. Right? He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly where he's heading. He's orchestrated all these events precisely the way that he knew that they needed to be orchestrated. He is always in control even when we just don't understand. And what I think is even more incredible for us, just to, again, just to take another moment to consider is that all of these events here that Jesus had planned out and that he had made provision for here that day that he was about to present himself to the nation, these details are nothing compared to the way that he planned and provided for our very salvation. Right? The Bible is very clear. In Revelation 13, it says that Jesus is the lamb slain when? Trick question, it's right there on the board. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And what that means is that before even the inception of the galaxies, God had put the cross of Christ fully in motion. Right. So then we have history, we have event after event and age after age, 
all organized by God in order to orchestrate the first coming of his son, right? He is in complete control. Now, what we're going to see is that just days from now, we know that Pontius Pilate was going to think that he was in control. You know that whole thing where on the day that Jesus died, Pilate wonders why Jesus won't even speak to him since Pilate was the one who had the legal authority to crucify Jesus. And I love Jesus' answer in John 19. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Right? Peter, we know, in his very first sermon that he preached in Acts chapter 2, he tells us that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Right? The cross was not a terrible accident. The cross was part of God's plan. God was in control and God still is in control. And I know that we touched on this, maybe it was even last week, but as far as I'm concerned, we couldn't touch on this more. Uh, we couldn't hear it enough. Because at those times when our world shakes and when our lives quake and when you know division comes and, and difficulty strikes, we need to know beyond a shadow of any doubt that God is still completely in control. God is absolutely unmoved and he is unsurprised. And we look around at this world we're living in, right? We think that it's spiraling out of control and maybe it is, but Jesus told us as much. He said, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things must first take place before the end. He said there would be, what, great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, right? So none of the things that we're seeing shock him at all. But instead, what we see is that even through these things, Jesus just continues kind of churning out his kingdom, right? Through all of these things, he continues to make disciples and he is shaping people into his image but here's the cool thing, guys. He's no longer setting aside young donkeys, but he's setting aside people. He's setting apart people just like you and just like me. And he's using them and he's using us to accomplish his purposes that he has already planned. Right? He is still handling the details of his kingdom and he's handling the details of our lives and he's doing it all for his glory. And that is why we can confidently say with the Apostle Paul that what? That God causes everything to work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. You know, so now, can I just encourage you all, when you come up to the next donkey moment in your life, Right? One of these things that simply doesn't make any sense to you at the time. You know, my prayer for each of us is that we can still simply respond with the same kind of wonderful obedience that we see here from the disciples because we can just simply rest and trust in God's sovereignty that he is accomplishing somehow. He's accomplishing his purpose for us even through that donkey deal. Right? So this is Jesus' prophetic demonstration, this very per first Palm Sunday, all made possible, if you will, by the disciples' obedient cooperation. Right? Because, because of their obedience, now all of the, the pieces are in place, if you will. All the prophetic pieces are ready. They'd gotten this baby donkey, it says in verse 7, and then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. So the disciples put their own cloaks kind of over the back of the donkey. They make a little kind of a saddle for Jesus before they continue now down the descent from the top of the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem itself. And along the way, in verse 8, we read that many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So not only, right, as they're drawing closer to the city itself, not only did the disciples spread out their cloaks on the back of the donkey, but now people along the road are spreading their own cloaks down on the ground in the path of the donkey. 
Right? So this is now the, the picture that we picture when we picture Palm Sunday in our minds, right? The spreading of the cloaks, the, the cutting down of these palm branches to spread them on the path, these both would have been signs of tremendous respect that would sort of befit the entry of a great king into the city. Right? These people are so excited about this day. They had all heard of Jesus. They'd heard the things he taught. They'd heard about this kingdom that he had proclaimed and that he said he was ushering in. And I think now as we think about this, this picture, this developing scene, this is kind of a, a slice that we like from the life of Jesus, right? Because this now is starting to feel right, right? For so much of Jesus' ministry, we know he's been despised and rejected by men, right? So often all of these big crowds that were following after him were all following after him only for what they could get from him. The vast majority of the audience really never made any kind of a personal commitment to him. They were there for the loaves and for the fish, Right, But all of that seemed so different on this day. Right here on this day, here they are lavishing this attention and this honor on him. And he's allowing it now for the very first time, which he'd never done before. They're using their clothes as a saddle. They're laying them down as kind of this red carpet. And you think about how pre this wasn't stuff that they ran out and bought at the H&M. Right? These were expensive things. These clothing, this was a very generous sort of a sacrifice. We just imagine the scene, all of this excitement, every step as they head toward the city. It says in verse 9, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of, the, of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So these verses, Mark's version makes it very, very clear. These people make it clear that they are not just welcoming any coming king. right? They were welcoming the coming king. The long anticipated king. They were welcoming Messiah king. So this is the people's very passionate declaration, right? This is it, they thought, right? Our hour of triumph has surely come, right? The kingdom of our father David, they say, has finally come. And they were right, but they were not at all right in the way that they thought they were right. right? And yet here, right from the pages and the promises of scripture, they believed that this man here on this donkey was about to assert his royal authority and begin his royal reign over Israel and make Jerusalem, again, the capital of, of the sort of a regenerated wor world, right? They're quoting words right straight from the Messianic Psalm 118, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Right? Hosanna simply means what? Save now. And Hosanna in the highest, right? Hosanna in the highest places, it has the idea of save us, O God, who lives in heaven. Right? So on this day, this crowd is receiving Jesus as the one sent by God in heaven as this triumphant Messiah, the King of Israel. Again, the problem is, they didn't understand the kind of king that Jesus really was because they didn't understand the kind of king that they really needed. Right? All of this, the waving of those palm branches, that was simply a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Right? It had begun about 200 years earlier. They were hailing their last great deliverer, Judas Maccabeus. Right? He had delivered them from the oppression of the Syrians. And so when the, the people are crying out, when they cry Hosanna and wave the palm branches as Jesus was riding here into Jerusalem, what they're essentially saying is, be Judas Maccabeus again for us, right? Deliver us this time from the Romans, who we know occupied them, ruled over them as part of their monstrous world empire. So the crowd is effectively crying out, 
you know, overthrow the Roman yoke politically. They want, you know, help us economically. Lead us militarily, right? Save us now. And again, the multitude is receiving Jesus as the very Messiah that God promised to deliver them from their oppression, except that the problem is they didn't realize the true oppression that he had come to free them from. We know, right, scripturally, all of these things, right, the restoration of Israel and the fulfillment of the promises and the deliverance from everyone who oppresses God's people, we know that all of that will be accomplished by God in its appointed time, and yet Jesus knew that there was other work, there was more important work that had to be accomplished first, because for him, there could be no kingdom without the cross. And here there's just this brief moment where Jesus is acknowledged as this rightful ruler, right, to the throne of David, but the time hadn't yet come for him to ascend to that throne, right? It will be at his second coming, right, when he'll finally come in glory and rebuild that kingdom of David that was thrown down. But the Jews, they think this is the moment. Understand, put yourself in their position. This is the moment to take their lives back once again and to reclaim their land as they had tried to do so many times. This is the moment for them to reclaim their identity and reclaim the power that they had. And so it's no wonder just days from now when they realize that none of that was his intent, they become disillusioned in him and they become disappointed with him as they start to realize that he had a very different agenda than a political one. He had a very different agenda than a national one. And Jesus has a very different agenda than a material one. And so we come to kind of what is the main lesson for all of us from the Palm Sunday story. It's so true today. You know, you find it's very easy for us as Christians individually or we see it's easy for the church corporately to mobilize politically, right, for this cause or that cause, because we want to reclaim something great, you know, for this kingdom on earth. We want to try to change the government. We want to try to change the economy. We want to try to change society. And Christians have no trouble these days rallying for that, but very few Christians are interested in a cross that talks about dying to self, right? It is one thing to shout out at a parade. It is something altogether different to stand at the foot of the cross. And so understand what this is, what's happening here today in this text. It's a patriotic rally. This is a politically charged moment and the multitudes are just looking to Jesus to deliver them politically. They want this national prosperity. They want this political overthrow. And the irony is that everything Jesus did, everything he did as he entered the city here was a clear picture telling them that he was about something else entirely. And it's all there in that little donkey detail. Because that little donkey detail is actually a very big deal. It's a critical one as Jesus uses it to just completely define himself. And in just that one move, he completely flips this whole thing on its end. He is the king, but he's the humble king and he's the servant king. And as we just saw him say last week, you know, we saw him declare that even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And as we think about this arrival of Jesus here into Jerusalem, it, it was even more than just this fantastic fulfillment of prophecy, but it gives us a very clear view into the reality of what his kingdom was really about. Because not only was the donkey an animal ridden by ancient kings, but even more so, it was an animal of peace. Unlike a stallion, Right, which you would ride into war. And in fact, in the ancient Near East, if a king approached a city with the intention to make peace with it, it was customary that he would ride into the city 
on a donkey instead of a war stallion. They could look in the distance and see the king coming. If he was on a donkey, they would know that he came intending to bring peace. So Jesus, as he came here into Jerusalem, made his intentions very clear. He was coming as the prince of peace who would provide the people with peace. If they had just been paying attention, right? But they didn't know that his primary purpose wasn't to make war against the Romans, but it was to bring peace with God. Look back, there's a detail there in Zechariah 9, that same prophecy. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, right? Jesus was bringing salvation, and the Hebrew word talks about deliverance, and it talks about freedom, just not in the way that this multitude thought. It was time to save the people, but it was going to be in a very different way, and instead of just simply wiping out the Romans, we know that Jesus was wiping out a far greater threat. He came to wipe out the penalty of their sins. And it was only after that was accomplished that he could provide peace. But not a political peace, right? A spiritual peace. Jesus would bring the peace of God by establishing peace with God. Amen? Right, Romans 5 says that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, it says that he came by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So the peace that the Messiah was always intended to bring, the peace that Jesus did bring, came through his great sacrifice on our behalf on the cross just days from this moment as it would be that act that would reconcile us back to the Father and it would restore that peace that was broken and that we lost in the fall. So the deliverance is a spiritual one, not a political one. And Jesus has taken this very public moment to make it perfectly clear that he's on a very different kind of a path than they had expected. And he defines for them, right, right, right in the middle of all of this big nationalistic fervor, he defines what it is that he's about, what it is that his kingdom about. He's here to save, but not in the way that they thought, right? Because he's a very different kind of a king with a very different kind of a kingdom. His entry there in the city was triumphal, but not at all in the way that they thought, right? Today was the day. Jesus is riding here into Jerusalem. We have this incredible procession, this very powerful picture that we understand, right? As the servant king, right, bringing the promised kingdom into Jerusalem that day. And here's what's really interesting, and I think that we mentioned this just this past Palm Sunday, but I know nobody was listening then, so it's okay. And I think it's especially worth mentioning, again, in the context of Mark's gospel as we look at this servant king and this sort of a paradoxical kingdom that we've been talking about. But what's interesting is that history tells us that this procession of Jesus here into Jerusalem, it was not the only procession that the city of Jerusalem saw on that day. Because in that same year, 32 AD, Roman historians record that the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, also led a procession of a Roman cavalry, Roman centurions. He led them right into Jerusalem over on the other side of Jerusalem on this very same day, also in anticipation of the Passover. Now, you guys remember Jerusalem is a walled city. Right? The whole city is enclosed by this protective wall and a series of these gates that they would open and give access and close at night for protection. And Jesus would have entered Jerusalem on this day through the eastern gate on the eastern side of the city, right there at the base of the Mount of Olives, which, by the way, is exactly how the Messiah was proposed to come from the east, right down the Mount of Olives into the city, while on that same day... On the other side of the city, 
Pilate would have most likely entered through the Jaffa Gate, right? The main gate on the west side of the city, just opposite from where Jesus entered. Because Pilate would have come from the west of the country, from his usual home at the very beautiful Caesarea on the sea. Right? That was sort of the real seat of Roman power in the region. It was built there by Herod. And understand, Pilate wasn't there in Jerusalem because he wanted to be there. He was there because he had to be there. Because all of the Roman governors who governed over that area of Judea had to be in Jerusalem during these major festivals. Not because they cared at all about their Jewish subjects, but to be there to handle business in case there was trouble. And especially at this Passover celebration. Understand, from the Romans' perspective, the Passover was just this kind of a weird Jewish festival that the Romans still allowed, but it really celebrated the liberation of the Jews from another empire that had ruled over them, right? The empire of Egypt. Again, it was this time when all of these Jewish nationalistic expectations would be just at this fever pitch. Right? And so just on this day here, Pilate would have traveled with this contingent of Rome's finest from his preferred palace there on the shores of Club Med, right? right to the stuffy, crowded, kind of a capital of the Jews here in Jerusalem. And he would have brought this huge contingent of troops with him just to keep an eye on things for the week. And this big procession that he came in with on the Sunday before the Passover, it was very much meant to send a message to the Jews as they got started in their celebration. It was a clear reminder, it was a warning that anyone who might be plotting anything against the mighty empire of Rome, right? this would have been a spectacular procession that was designed to remind the Jews that Rome had no tolerance for rebellion against its system and that they had the might to back it up. It was meant to intimidate the citizens of Jerusalem so that they would just think twice about any funny business that might try to happen during the Passover. And so that being said, we can just imagine what Pilate's procession was like. You imagine the spectacle of that as it came into the city, right, on the other side. Here you've got these drummers that are probably beating out this cadence. And then you've got, you know, Pilate himself seated atop some kind of a stallion. And he's leading hundreds and hundreds of Roman soldiers, probably both on horseback and on foot. And each and every soldier would have been clad in this polished leather armor and they would have these hammered helmets on their heads that were gleaming in the sunlight and these sheathed swords or these bows and arrows you know ready to go you know Pilate's military procession was a clear demonstration of Rome's imperial power and it absolutely embodied embodied all of the power and the violence of this kingdom empire that ruled by force over the entire world. And then just on the other side of the city, we have Jesus' procession. He's coming humbly here down the Mount of Olives. He's riding on this baby donkey. And this embodies a completely and an alternative vision, not at all of the kingdom of man. But this is the vision of the kingdom of God. A very different kingdom with a very different king that operates according to an entirely different economy. Right? Jesus' procession embodied all of the peace and the tranquility, really that shalom, right? That peace that God intends to bring to his people. So today was a day that was really all about Jesus' really paradoxical kingdom presentation, right? This upside down kingdom that we've been noting throughout our study through Mark's gospel. And these two different processions are a perfect picture, such a clear contrast between these two different kinds of kings and different kind of kingdoms that are in our world today that were right here on display that day in Jerusalem. And here's the thing is that though many of these common people, they thought they were siding with Jesus but they were doing it for all the wrong reasons because they thought that they were going to get from Jesus the very same thing that the other people thought 
that they were going to get from Rome. They were looking for the same prosperity and the same peace, but of a worldly kind. But Jesus came to provide an entirely better peace. Of course, he knew this, but this Palm Sunday multitude didn't. And we just look at how amazing it is. Here these people are, they're quoting the scriptures. They're having the scriptures fulfilled for them in their eyes. And yet just days from now, they are going to willfully reject him because they don't fully understand his mission. and They don't fully understand his kingdom. Right? Jesus was on a very different kind of a triumphal entry. He has his own path to glory. It's not the path that the Passover pilgrims expected. It certainly isn't the path that the religious leaders wanted. It's certainly not the one that Pilate's procession was on. The path that Jesus is on to glory leads to death. Right? He's not traveling this road to revolution. He's traveling the road to Calvary. And it was a road that didn't just lead triumphantly into Jerusalem, but it led through its streets where he would be mocked and jeered just days from now. It was a road that didn't end there in the city, but we know it continues right out the other side through the city gates to a hill called Golgotha. To Calvary, right? The place of the skull where Paul tells us that he would be made sin for us and suffer in our place through his death on a Roman cross. So this truly is a different kind of king. This is a different kind of kingdom. And even today in our lives, his power and his kingship and his authority and his leadership, it's so different even than what we think of, our own ideas of power and kingship, even to this day. Just as different as these, as these two different parades that were coming into Jerusalem on that day. And Jesus this whole time has been talking about this kingdom of God in the way that no one has ever talked about it before. This kingdom where death brings life and sacrifice brings honor and where a king willingly and lovingly will lay down his life for his subjects. Because as we, as we close today, I have to tell you, and some of you Bible students already know this, but there interestingly was actually a third procession which was also coming into Jerusalem on that very day. Because according to the book of Exodus, this was also the very day, right, Palm Sunday, the 10th day of Nisan, the 6th day of April, four days before the Jewish feast of Passover, the law prescribed that this was the day when every Jewish family who was about to celebrate the Passover, they would select a lamb to be their sacrifice. And the priests would watch over that lamb very closely from the 10th to the 14th, right, for those four days to, in order to ensure that it was healthy and, and you know, without blemish or flaw. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that one year they took a census of the number of lambs that were slain for a Passover, and the figure was 256,500 lambs. So think about that number, and you have a picture on this day in our text, right, A.D. 32, we can picture as Pilate's procession is entering through the western gate, here's Jesus' procession entering through the eastern gate, while tens of thousands of innocent lambs were also being brought into Jerusalem through a northern gate, through the sheep gate up at the north end of the city. As on that day, right, in the midst of all of the selecting and all of the inspecting of all of these sacrificial lambs, the true lamb of God, right? The, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world had also just entered the holy city to be sacrificed for you and sacrificed for me to take away the sins of the world. And no one there saw him coming for who he really was. And you know, we have to wonder, remember Mark's readers were primarily a Roman audience, right? And you have to wonder as they read this and this description of this procession of Jesus on this day, you have to wonder what they would have thought. Because if you spoke of this event as, as some sort of triumphal entry of Jesus, a Roman would have laughed at you. Because a triumphal entry to a Roman, it was an official honor that was granted to a Roman general 
who had won a complete and decisive victory in some campaign, he had to have killed at least 5,000 enemy soldiers. And when he returned to Rome, they would have had this very elaborate parade where first would be all the treasures that they had captured from the enemy. Then would come the prisoners that they had brought back. Then the conquering armies would be lined up unit by unit, unit by unit. And finally, the conquering general himself was pulled in a golden chariot by these magnificent horses, while all the time these pagan priests were burning incense in his honor, and the people are shouting his name and praising him. That was a triumphal entry. It was not a Galilean peasant. It was not some poor rabbi who's sitting on a few coats that have been set out on the back of a baby donkey as all of these nondescript Passover pilgrims sing his praises, and especially not as 12 ragtag disciples, most of whom smelled like fish, followed after him. Right? This was truly a different kind of king, and he was bringing a very different kind of kingdom. But what we do know, the next time that Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the scene will be radically different, won't it? Right? Revelation 19, Zechariah 14, they both tell us that when Jesus comes that time, you know, at his second coming, he will, he will come in great glory. He will come on a white horse. He won't come in humility. But instead, the armies of heaven, who do you think that is? That's you and that's me. Right? We're going to come with him personally, right, that he will, at that point, he will come and he'll descend upon the Mount of Olives, the very same road where this Palm Sunday um, procession came. His foot will touch down on the top of it and absolutely split the mountain in two. But it will be a scene of total victory as he then comes to defeat his enemies and really establish this kingdom. That will be a triumphal entry by anyone's standards. And yet, it will be no more triumphal than the one that we just studied in our text this morning. Right? Because this time on this first, you know, this first Palm Sunday morning, if you will, how thankful are we that Jesus did come in humility? That he did come riding on a donkey? That he came not on the road to revolution? He didn't come to overthrow Rome but he came on the road to Calvary to redeem our souls back to God and then to call us to follow after him to a life of death and to share in this victory and the glory and the honor of him as he is glorified and as he is exalted just days from now, as the scriptures say, he's lifted up for all the world to see on a cross. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate communion. I want to invite Fior to come back up. And again, what a great text, right, to celebrate communion. I know I say that every month. What a great text, right, to consider as we consider communion and what it means to each one of us as followers of Jesus. As we look back to what it is that he did for us on the cross, we look ahead to when he promises he'll return for us. And really just to contemplate this very different kind of king and this very different kind of kingdom that he came to establish in each of our lives. And the way that he's really called each of us to follow him into this very different kind of life that we're supposed to be following him in very different than the procession that we see. You know, you don't want to be part of the Pilate procession. You want to be part of the Jesus procession. Amen? So as we take communion this morning, I'll say again what I'll say every month. At Calvary Mountain View, we have what's called open communion, which simply means that it's open to you. Even if you're part of another church, it's open to you as long as you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That's the only requirement that there is to take communion. And if you are a believer in Jesus, we would love you to celebrate communion with us. The elements will be up here. You can come and take them. We'll take them back to our seats. Just have some private time to reflect 
Uh, just have a time of intimacy with the Lord. And then when you're ready, you can take the elements individually as Fiora leads us in worship. And if you're not already a believer in Jesus and you'd like to take communion with us, we can make that happen too. You know, there's people up here up front. Pastor Jeff is here and his wife Ann is over there. And they would love to answer questions that you have or better yet to pray with you about how it is that you can begin that, uh, that journey with Jesus uh, with first taking communion with us here this morning. Amen. So let's pray, and then Fior's going to lead us, and we will uh, reflect and we'll celebrate. Uh, and then when we're done, I'll come back up and we'll dismiss. So, Father, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord. We thank you each and every time we look at it. We thank you for your word, Lord, and the great encouragement that it provides to us, Lord. The insight that it gives to us, Lord, into your heart and the way that you have planned and you have provided for this wonderful salvation we enjoy. And so we pray, Lord, as we do go to this time of communion, we pray that it, you would make it fresh and alive in each one of our hearts, Lord. We pray that it would never become something that's common to us, Lord, but it would simply be something that's new and that's, um, that's alive inside of us as we do it. And so uh, we pray for that now, Lord. Pray we'd make it a special time, Lord, as we worship you and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen.